join together, please, in reading a selection of scripture from Luke, reading together. One day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. And some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house and lay him before Jesus. And when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? We'll actually be continuing in Mark, so naturally that's why we read from Luke. Let's pray. Lord God, now as we look into your word, again, we acknowledge to you that if you're not at work in our hearts and if you're not opening our eyes to see, none of this is going to make any sense. And so we ask for your understanding, for your uh, touching of our hearts and lives with your word in a way that it just grabs a hold of us and encourages and challenges us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. I was about six or seven years old, and my parents at that time were living and working in Tehuacan, which is a small town in southern Mexico. And I went to a friend of mine, his his house, uh, for a birthday party for him, and, and we were there a good part of the day. And then as, as it came time for people to start heading home, most everybody walked because he lived nearby, but one family had come to pick up the kids with a car. And I don't know why we thought this was fun to do, but I was seven years old, and we were pushing the cars as they went. They didn't need any help, but we were pushing anyway. And as I was pushing this car down the driveway, I thought, you know, I could probably jump on this thing pretty easily. Um, and I did. I got up on the back. The bumper was about that wide. So here I am riding down the street in this car, and... Um, I saw my house coming up, and I thought, oh, this is not good. Uh, I need to probably get off, and so I did. I got off. Needless to say, I rolled and bounced, and I don't know how many times, but I got up, and I was was a bit of a mess, and I walked in the house, and my mom and dad said, what happened to you? And at that point in time, why, I don't know, but I lied. And I said, oh, I fell off a ladder at the party. And so they, you know, took care of me and patched me all up and put me to bed. And I thought, okay, good. We're we're good with that one. I don't know why I didn't want them to know what really happened. Maybe because I didn't want them to think I was that foolish. (laughs) But uh, the next day, my mom was in town. And um, the lady that had driven the car came up to her and said, I am so sorry. I did not know that your son was on the back of my car and fell off. <clears throat> so now we've got a problem, right? And so mom and dad got together and came in and, and uh, I mean, they confronted me and they had every right to. I'd never, to their knowledge and to my knowledge, never really overtly lied to them in the past. 
And so, you know, I, there was a lot of tears, and I confessed and asked for forgiveness, and they forgave me, and it was great. Problem was that for the next, probably the next couple years, anytime I was asked about something and there was any kind of a doubt, I, they never said it to me, but I could hear kind of in the background, they'd say, well, how do we know? How do we know if it's true? You know, how do we know that he's not lying? And, you know, I'd been forgiven, and, and uh, you know, was I forgiven really? Well, yeah, I was forgiven, but there were some things going on there still, and I had earned back some of that trust. And as I was thinking about that in, in the sense with the things that we have that we're going to be looking at here today, how do we know that we're forgiven? That's a really good question. And as we get into the passage today, I think you'll, you'll see what, what we have to say there. And as Mark is writing... Uh, he started out within the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then remember, he, as he's writing these stories that he's heard from Peter and listened to Peter, he groups them in, in ways that are for a particular reason. He's not necessarily going chronologically. So as we go through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, there are five separate events where Jesus comes into serious conflict with the religious leaders. It seems, if you're just kind of reading, that they just go from one to the other to the other to the other. And it, that's probably not the case. There's no real indication of time passing by. We just know this is a new event by the way that he says it. So it's very possible these things took place in a whole big sphere of time, but that he brings them together to make that point about the conflict with the Jewish leaders. So that's what the purpose is putting before us at this point in time. So the very first conflict that we see starts in chapter 2. Uh, verses 1 to 12. And one of the ways we, we, we know that it isn't necessarily chronologically is he says a few days later, which again, that's just a way of saying, okay, we, we're not up here in the other parts of Galilee. We've now come back to Capernaum and, and, and it's a few days later. And we don't know what that actually means other than that time has passed. That's all that we know. And uh, it could be a day, it could be a month, we, we just don't really have that information. So a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home, and so many have gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So now he's probably staying with Peter and Andrew again in their home, and so they've come back here, the disciples and, and Peter and Andrew and their, their families are there, and people start gathering, and he, for some reason he's inside at this point in time, and he's teaching, and, and all of the rooms of the house fill up, and people are crowded into the doorway, and anywhere they can hear, and the crowd keeps getting bigger and bigger, and, you know, basically he's just there teaching and preaching and, and telling them about the kingdom of God. The house was so full that there was no place to stand. I mean, it, basically that's all it was, was standing room only. So that's the context into which we get verse 3, which is just such a great verse. Mark tells us in, in such a unique way. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. So you got four men. They've got a friend who's paralyzed, who apparently is limited to living on his, his mat. And uh, they, they have heard about Jesus, and they say, hey, we need to take you to see Jesus. So they pick him up, mat and all, and they, they head on down to see Jesus. <clears throat> and they get there, 
And, and I mean, there's this huge, here's the house, and there's a huge crowd all around the house. And I'm sure they probably tried, excuse us, excuse us. Uh, nobody's moving. Nobody's getting out of the way. No one is willing to let four guys with a guy on a mat get to the door. So that's not happening. So now at this point, these four friends have got to be thinking, all right, now what do we do? And, and I'm thinking to myself, how long did it take for them to come up with this plan? Uh, you know, this is one of those stories that, that I heard when I was really young, and I've known it ever since I was a kid, and yet some of those questions just are never answered. Um, so anyway, nobody lets them in, and they could have just said, hey, all right, we'll try again tomorrow. Jesus isn't going anywhere. But they didn't do that. So verse 4, since they could not get him to Jesus... Because the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. Now, how did they come up with this idea? I mean, really, it, it worked, obviously, as we'll see here in just a minute. But So here they are. Most of the houses of the time had some kind of a flat roof, and, and it was the kind of roof that was designed to kind of make the water run off. There wasn't that much rain, so maybe they weren't as solidly built as flat roofs that we know of today. But they go up there on the roof. There's a staircase probably on the backside of the house. They get up there, and they estimate where Jesus is going to be underneath them, and they begin, did they go home and get tools? I don't know, but they begin ripping up the roof. Okay, so they're chopping a hole in this person's roof, Peter and Andrew's home probably. So here they are chopping this hole, and at some point the people inside who are listening to Jesus must be kind of looking up and seeing what's going on. I mean, there's got to be stuff coming down on them, right? And then eventually there's a bit of a hole that develops, and then the hole gets bigger and bigger, and I, my guess is Jesus might have just stopped talking at this point. You know, here they are all just looking up at this hole, and finally the hole is big enough, these guys, and you see these four faces kind of looking down, guessing, okay, that's, that's, that's the right place. And so they bring the guy with a mat, they tie the ropes to it, and they lower him down through the roof right in front of Jesus. Now, I have to be honest, this is one I want to see. This is incredible. And so here this guy is, and, and there wasn't any room before. Well, there's a lot less room now because they're all backing out of the way so that this poor guy can hit the floor right in front of Jesus. Now, so here's this man. They're all looking at this man, and I'm sure maybe they all looked up, and there's four faces kind of looking down, saying, okay, what are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do? I mean, they weren't going anywhere. They were going to wait and see what Jesus was going to do. That's the scene, okay? Now, it's in that scene that we have this great conversation. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, how did he see their faith? Uh, there's a hole in the roof, and the guy's in front of them. That, that's how he saw their faith. They believed he could do something, and they got their guy right there in front of Jesus. So he, he saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And now it hit the fan with all the religious leaders. Right? Now it really was a mess. Uh, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, this is blasphemy. This is blasphemy. Nobody can forgive sins except for God. And so here they are going through this, and, and, they're, and they're wondering what they need to do. And Luke 5.17 gives us even more detail. Because some of the teachers of the law were saying this blasphemy. Look what Luke 5.17 says. Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village in Galilee and from Judea and from Jerusalem were sitting there. Okay, this is a who's who of the religious leaders of 
of Israel. I mean, there's, there are so many religious leaders there that it'd be interesting to know if any normal people were in the room even. Because they came from everywhere, and they're there listening to Jesus. They're trying to figure out if this man is someone worth listening to. They're trying to figure out why they're hearing so many things about miracles. And here they are sitting in front of him. A paralytic comes down in front of him, and the first thing Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven. Now, for a Pharisee, scribe, religious leader, I mean, this is, this is absolute blasphemy. Um, how, who... And they, and they make the statement, uh, verse 7, <clears throat> why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? And, and that's what blasphemy was, to take God's place in some way or to put yourself, to do something that only God could do and say that you could do it. And there's all kinds of ways that blasphemy took place. But forgiving sins, that certainly, if you didn't have the power to do that, would be blasphemy. And I love the question, who can forgive sins the God alone. And you got to love the fact that Mark is putting it this way. Because on one level, what Mark is saying is, this is what they were saying. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And, and what he's trying to say is, uh, hello, look at Jesus. He can forgive sins. He can forgive sins. And so there's this, this huge picture that he's drawn out and, and he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Luke is saying, or, or Mark is saying, well, of course he can forgive sins. Guess what? He's God. And, and so this is just coming through as he continues to talk and he continues to write. Um, <clears throat> who can forgive sins? God. Guess who this is? He's the Messiah. He's God in human form. I have a quote here that I think is appropriate. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need. It costs the greatest price. And it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. On one level, if Jesus had not done anything further, having this man's sins forgiven would have been incredible. And to know that they're forgiven. Verse 8, the Jews immediately, the Jews knew, or immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. So they didn't say it out loud, but they thought it, and he knew exactly what they were thinking. He says, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or get up, take your mat, and walk? Now, he's not thinking of the easiest way to say this. He's just thinking, which is easier to prove? Well, it really is a whole lot easier to prove that he gets up and walks. But Jesus said, I'm going to forgive your sins, which can't be proven. Nobody there can actually see that anything has happened here. So on one level, Jesus is saying, it's a whole lot easier for me to forgive sins because you can't know whether it happened or not. But if I say, get up and walk, and he doesn't, well, then you will absolutely know that I failed at that. And so this kind of thinking that's going on in this scenario, Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he said, so which is easier? And, and 
verse 10, he just brings it all together. He says, but so that you may know, all of you religious leaders, all of you guys who are sitting there mumbling and grumbling about how I don't have the authority to forgive sins, I want you to know that I do, and this is the proof. Verse 10, he says, get up, take your mat, and go home. And I love the way he puts it. Just so that you know that the Son of Man, by the way, a title from the book of Daniel that was used for the Messiah, says, just so that you know the Son of Man, me, Jesus, has the power and the authority to forgive sins, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. And he does. He does. It's exactly what he does. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view. And this amazed, verse 12, this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. What an incredible story. And Mark, <clears throat> Mark tells it really, really well. We've never seen anything like this. And, and think about it. He, he gets up, and everybody's watching. Okay, yeah, he, yeah, we could see that he was paralyzed. He's not anymore. Kind of rolls up his mat. And can you imagine what the balcony's doing at about this point? I mean, these four guys looking down, they've got to be going, yeah! Maybe they're high-fiving. Who knows what they're doing, but there's a whole lot of happiness and joy because Jesus healed this man and sent him home. That's incredible when you, when you think about that. Now, there's some implications here. There's that phrase, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic. And so, um, the discussion sometimes goes about who's, who is the there that it's talking about. Some people really stress the fact that it's just the four guys, it's not the guy on the mat. Uh, some people say, well, it, if it isn't the guy on the mat, then how did he, you know, why did he let them do this? And so I, I'm of the opinion that I really think it's Jesus referring to all five of them, because all of them had to express some sort of faith for this to take place. I mean, he could have said, you guys are crazy, leave me alone. I'm fine laying down here. But no, he came willingly. When they decided to take him up the stairs on the mat, he didn't say a word apparently, just kind of hung on tight until they got him on the roof. When they drop him through the hole, again. And so this is someone who's, who has some belief in what they're doing. He has some faith. And so when Jesus saw their faith, I love that. Um, Jesus looks at this, he sees their faith, and, and he sees the fact that, <clears throat> you know, Something has to happen here for people to know. And so he goes through the whole process of, of forgiving sins and then raising him up to full strength to be able to walk. And when we, when we come to know the Lord and when we seek him, one of the things that we're admitting is that we need help. And that's what the paralytic was doing in the four guys. This guy's paralyzed. He's never going to get any better unless we can get him to Jesus. So let's go. And sure enough, they got him to Jesus, and Jesus healed him. Now, when we seek the Lord, and when we come to the Lord, one of the things that we're doing, whatever the situation is, whatever's going on in our lives, one of the things we're saying is, I need help. God, I can't do this. And many, many times when I'm, when I'm working through a situation, or maybe I'm trying to help someone else, the, the prayer that is constantly on my heart and on my mind is, help Help, God, I can't do this. And that should be our heart's desire all the time. 
you know, maybe we do have some skills, and maybe we've got abilities, but even with our skills and abilities, as we step in to do something, it should be, Lord, guide me in some way. Help me. I can't do this well. I can't, I, I may have the skill, but I, I need you to really make it all happen. Hebrews 11, 1 says this. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. And so there's two words that describe faith. It's that sure or the assurance, being sure, and it's being certain or convicted of something. So he says, faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Now stop and think about what's going on with these guys and the faith. Being certain that Jesus could do something, being assured that he could, and being, being, being able to say, okay, let's put him before Jesus. Let Jesus take care of this. Uh, came across this, this quote this week. Faith starts with believing God's character, that he is who he says he is. And faith starts with believing God's character and believing God's promises. Character, that he really is who he says he is. We're being sure of that. And his promises that he will do what he says he will do. We're certain that what he's promised, he will fulfill. So faith starts with believing who? In God, his character, and his promises. Now verse 6 of Hebrews 11 says this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Must believe that he exists and that he's the rewarder of those who come. I love Hebrews for a lot of reasons, but just those two verses alone are so powerful. Are we certain and are we sure? Yes, we have faith in that he's given us and, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we come and say, Lord, even, even my faith is weak, but I, I trust you. Lord, take the faith I've got and, and do what you need to do with it. These four men believed Jesus was who he said he was, the Messiah. And not only that, they believed that he could do what he said he would do, which was to heal. And, and so they bring their friend, they put him before Jesus, and Jesus forgives his sins and raises him up. What an incredible thing. What an amazing God we have. Another implication, again from verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. There is power in that word forgiveness, isn't there? There's, there's a sense of something changes when forgiveness takes place. And when we think about forgiveness in the sense of God forgiving sin, there's, there's, there's so much going on here. And, and this word that is used here is the same word that's used when we say whoever believes, whoever puts their faith and trust in him, you know, you will be forgiven. Um, and and it, it's used here because it goes far beyond just human forgiveness. This is God forgiving, which is an incredible thing. Um, I'm going to just go through some thoughts on this as I, as I came across this this week. The Greek word for forgiveness includes the idea that the law and justice are satisfied for Jesus paid the penalty our sins deserved. 
Stop and think that through. The, the law and justice are totally satisfied. Nothing further required for my sins. They've been taken care of. Jesus paid the price. First John 4.10 says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins or to satisfy uh, our sins, the debt of our sins. So our debt's been paid in full, and Jesus paid it all. Remember the song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe? Well, that's exactly what's going on here. He paid it all. And he's the one that I look to and can thank and praise that what I did has been satisfied totally and completely. I will never have to pay a debt for my sins. It's done. Paid in full. Second thing. The idea of forgiveness includes the guilt caused by our sin is removed and replaced with Christ's righteousness. Don't you love that? Instead of sin and guilt and all of the things that, that I've been living with, I, I mean, that's gone, taken care of. And instead of my sin and being guilty before God, because that's gone, I now have the righteousness of Christ. It's been imputed to me. I've been given the righteousness of Christ. And so we're forgiven, and in God's eyes, it's as if we never sinned. How, how do you do that? Well, we can't, but God can. What an incredible God we have that he does that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right, or be made righteous, with God through Christ Jesus. So you know, our guilt's gone. It's been removed, totally taken care of, and we are not full of sin. God looks down and he sees Jesus and he sees me through the blood of Jesus and I'm perfect in his sight. What an incredible thing. If it wasn't for that, we'd be walking around burdened down with an awful lot of guilt. And the older you get, the more guilt there'd be, so I wouldn't even be able to walk. But it's gone, taken care of. And the word forgiveness also, <clears throat> our sins are removed and put away forever. They're, they are no longer something that he remembers. God can't remember our sins. When we come to him and we are saved because we believe that Jesus died for us and we say, Lord, save me, he does. And then our sins are gone forever. I love Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. If he did, there'd be no hope for any of us. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And then here's my favorite part. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. They're gone. He doesn't remember them. He can't even find them. That's amazing. I mean, they, they're just totally, totally gone. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we receive that forgiveness that he offers us, this is the forgiveness we're talking about. We're saved. We're born again. We're changed entirely. At that point in time, 
Those sins are gone. Now, do we still struggle and, and do things from time to time and, and have to struggle? Yeah, but that's the sanctification process where we get back in fellowship with God, but the salvation is taken care of. That's secure. There are three or four things, <clears throat> maybe a couple more in my life, um, which, if I t- think about them, bring pretty, pretty bad shame. <clears throat> Don't get me wrong, I've confessed them and I know the Lord doesn't remember them. The hard part is sometimes I still do. And it's when you're, when, for me, it's when I'm struggling or weak and going through some hard things all of a sudden and I believe it's the enemy, boom, there it is. That thing that I did or that way that I treated that person or the things that I said. That's when you go back to Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west. As far as the east is from the west, they're not there. They're gone. And the memories, like shadows, come back from time to time, but they're taken care of. They've been paid for. song that we sing from time to time, this one verse really... And it really says it well. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of a guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. When we are saved and we've turned to Christ and we're forgiven and we know Jesus paid it all, there is incredible joy in that. And that is something that when we're down, we're upset, we're struggling, we've got to go back to, thank you, Lord God, for saving me. And if we pray nothing else, that's a really big one that we can pray. Let's go on to verse 13. Now, like I said, there's a, the time sequence is not something that's A, B, C, D, and straight on down the line. Um, matter of fact, here he says once again, and that's the determination that a new element he's going to talk about is taking place. And once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, And a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, one of the things that's unique about where Jesus was in Capernaum is that, you know, he could go up on the hills, and like where the Sermon on the Mount took place, you know, there's this slope that lots of people could sit there. He could stand at the bottom, and they could all hear him. Same thing happened in different places along the shores. There's a slope down to the water, and people could sit on the shore, see Jesus, and hear Jesus. At times, he even sat in the boat so that there'd even be an opportunity for more people to hear. But this is what's happening. He's out there. There's a huge crowd, and he's teaching. Everywhere Jesus went, one of the things he wanted to do was to teach and to preach, and he was always doing that, not just the synagogue, but on the shore, on the hillside, in the house, wherever it was, Jesus was preaching and teaching. Verse 14, as he walked along, so now he's walking along, he saw Levi, or Matthew, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he said, follow me. 
Uh, Levi got up and he followed him. Now, one of the things that we know about Capernaum is that it was on the caravan route from Damascus all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. So there are people coming through, traveling through all the time. Capernaum's a good-sized town, and there were people there to collect taxes for Rome. There were all kinds of other taxes. I went through and read all the different kinds of things that they got taxed for, and I thought, holy smokes. Um, no wonder they hated tax collectors, and they hated Levi. He's a tax collector. He worked for the Romans. Matter of fact, if you were a tax collector... It meant that a whole lot of things went badly for you in the in, in with the Jewish people. Uh, they, you were considered a traitor. You were an extortioner as far as they were concerned. You were not allowed to be a witness or a judge in any kind of a hearing. Uh, you were considered untrustworthy, and that's the main reason they wouldn't let you do that. They were excommunicated from the synagogue, so they couldn't even be a part of that. And yet Jesus comes up on Matthew and invites him, into a relationship. Come, follow me. I wonder what the other disciples thought. Seriously, I mean, they lived in Capernaum. This guy took their money away, and he gave it to Rome and kept a good chunk for himself. That's how they got wealthy. Anyway, Jesus calls him, and he follows. Um, so, verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's home, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. So here you've got, you know, Matthew comes, and now some people call this a kind of a party where Matthew wants to introduce Jesus to all of his associates. Now, I have no idea how many tax collectors were in the area, or if there were tax collectors all over the place, but they were there. They were there at this party, and they were listening to Jesus, and, and, and the, the disciples were there. And so the, it's interesting, you know, here Jesus is doing an outreach, if you will. He's reaching out. He's starting with Matthew. Matthew brings a whole bunch of people. All these people come in, and Jesus is, is teaching again. He's telling them the things that he wants them all to know about God, and, and, and he keeps on doing these kinds of things. Verse 16. When the teachers of the law who were, there, who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? New Living translates it, why does he eat with such scum? That's what they thought. Tax collectors and sinners, they're just scum. Why is he eating with them? He has no business doing that. Again, my questions are, how could they see? They, got, they weren't in there. Why didn't they talk to Jesus? None of those things seem to matter. The Pharisees are upset at what Jesus is doing. And, uh, you know, the tax collector. And then also sinners. Sinners were anybody. didn't matter who you were. If you didn't stick to the rigid pharisaical rules and regulations and all of the rituals and all the things they said you should do, then you were an evil sinner. And that's what he's talking about plain, ordinary people, as well as the tax collectors. And so, why does he do this? Why, why, is he, why is he having a meal with these people? Because really, when you had a meal with someone in that time period of, uh, and, and in those places, you were entering into fellowship. And when you were having a meal like this and, and, and you brought someone in like Jesus, you wanted your friends to hear what he had to say. And the fact that they came and they were there is an indication that they were interested in the things that Jesus had been saying. And so here they are listening to Jesus teach. And the Pharisees either are hanging around outside or could somehow see what's going on. And they're complaining to the disciples that Jesus is in there sharing 
the message, sharing the gospel with people that needed it. On hearing this, the criticism that they uh, brought to the disciples, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, he's using the term righteous for them, not saying that that they are righteous, but saying it because they think they are righteous. So they think they're holier than everybody around, and everyone should use them as an example. And Jesus said, hey, I'm here to call sinners to repentance, not the people, he didn't use the word, but not the people who think they're okay. They thought they were crazy. They thought they were the ones that people should be imitating and, and not listening to Jesus. So what's our takeaway from all of this? It was a common belief in that time frame that physical suffering came as a result of personal sin. It's interesting, because in this case, Jesus didn't say that this man, he didn't deal, he said, I forgive your sins, and then I'm gonna, we're gonna deal with the, with the physical part too. But you remember the disciples when they saw the man born blind, what was the question they asked? Who sinned that this man was born blind? Himself before he was born? Or his parents? And so there was that strong prevailing thing that they believed in. And the reality is Jesus comes along and says, hey, you know what? I can heal and I can save. And that's what I intend to do. So I came up with six things that I just want to help us think through, maybe just remember as we think about this passage uh, that we've just been through. And next week we'll deal with the next three of the interaction that he had with religious leaders. So we need to remember, number one, when, we, when sin entered the world, so did sickness and death. Before sin, before the fall, there was no sickness. There was none of, you didn't have to, I mean, hey, you didn't even have to till the ground. Everything grew perfectly. Everything was wonderful. It was perfect. And then sin. And with sin came sickness and came death. So the curse impacted everything. We are born with a sin nature, and the earth is cursed. It's hard work to make the earth do the things that we want it to do. So that's the first thing. We need to remember, number two, Jesus has authority to read our hearts and minds. I think sometimes we don't think that through all the way. Um, You know, here he is, all these religious leaders are there, and he says, son, I forgive your sins, and they're all Man, they're going crazy in their brains. Who can do that but God? And, and Jesus knows what they're thinking. Jesus understands what they're saying in their own hearts. And he has the authority to deal with that. And, and I think one of the things that I want to remember constantly is he has the authority, thankfully, to read my heart and read your heart. What an amazing thing. There are times when maybe we're struggling and hurting, and we don't even have the words to put to it, but we say, God, help. And he reads our heart. He reads our minds, and he knows exactly what's going on and what we need. So in our, in our deepest struggles and in those times when we wonder, we, can, we know for a fact that he still loves us and that he's still working and that he is taking care of us. Number three, we need to remember God has not left sinners in their sin and suffering. Think that one through. Nobody has to stay in their sin. 
No one has to continue their suffering. Jesus said, whosoever will may come, come, come. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved once and for all. Get out of the the stuff that you're in. Let God change you and shape you and mold you. Instead of death and hell, there's grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. Come. God did not leave us to our own devices. He said, sending my son, believe on him, believe on him. You will not be in your sin and you won't be in that suffering. Number four, we need to remember that forgiveness is God's greatest gift because it meets our greatest need. One of the discussions in this chapter, uh, when, when people discuss the, the young man, or the man, the paralytic who was, who was healed, is <clears throat> what would have happened if Jesus had just forgiven his sins and not healed him? And, and that isn't what happened. But stop and think about it. What was his greatest need? It wasn't that he couldn't walk. It was that he was on his way to hell. He was bound to be judged. And Jesus comes along and gives him the gospel and forgives his sins and then heals him. And I think one of the things that we need to always remember is that God's gift to us of salvation is the best gift ever. John 3.16, God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. What an incredible God. Jesus died and he paid the price for my sin and for your sin. And when I believe that he died for me and I accept what Jesus did, I receive the forgiveness of God. I am new and fresh and clean. We need to remember, number five, Jesus will forgive us all of our sins forever. They're not just stuck away someplace ready for him to roll them back if we don't toe the line. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's God's plan. Forgiveness was God's plan always on his terms and in his way. We need to remember, number six, never stop rejoicing in the forgiveness of sins that we have through Jesus Christ. May we never get over that. The price was huge. He paid a price none of us can even imagine so that we could have fellowship with him. And then with a, I think this is the song, first song I ever learned to play on the guitar way back, and I thought of this So I was studying this morning. It's called Why. Why did they nail him to Calvary's tree? Why? Tell me, why was he there? Jesus, the helper, the healer, the friend. Why? Tell me, why was he there? All my iniquities on him were laid. He nailed them all to the tree. Jesus, the debt of my sin, fully paid. He paid the ransom for me. Why should he love me, a sinner, undone? Why? Tell me, why should he care? I do not merit the love he has shown. Why? Tell me, why should I care? All my iniquities on him were laid. He nailed them all to the tree. 
Jesus, the debt of my sin fully paid. He paid the ransom for me. Let's pray. Lord, we are so blessed to be able to call you Lord. To know that you came, you lived, you died, and you did that for us. And Lord, the things that we've studied this morning just show your heart for us, for lost people like me, like all of us. So Lord, this morning, if someone has not taken that step, Lord, would you just gently grab a hold of their hearts and bring them towards yourself? And for the rest of us that have come, Lord, help us to never forget and help us to walk out of here rejoicing in the forgiveness that you gave us at such a high cost. Thank you for dying for me. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond with one more song together this morning. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to My Savior lives because He lives. I can face tomorrow because He lives. All fear is gone because I know. sing one more verse. And then one day, across the river, I'll fight life's Just because he lives.
And now receive the benediction from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Thank you, Lord. We are blessed by your hand and through the blood of your son, Jesus, taking away our sins. And thank you, Father, for the spirit you have given us to seal us until the day that we return to you. Thank you. Through Christ's name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed and have a great week serving our King.